My name is Adam Condit. I'm going to provide the message here for this week and next week, and we will get going. Before we do that, let's pray real quick. God, thank you for giving us this time. Thank you for uh, giving us the church and what you have um, ordained, how we're supposed to interact with one another and also with you, God. I pray that we would come under your word and uh, hear from you, certainly not hear from me, but I, I pray that we would be open to what your word has in Matthew 16 here for us. And thank you for bringing us all together. Amen? All right. We're going to be in Matthew 16 today, so if you want to get there in your Bibles, I will start reading right around chapter, or excuse me, verse 13 in Matthew 16. Before we do that, let me just give you an idea of where we'll be. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus today. I hope we do that every week. We're going to talk a lot about Peter today, actually. Um, and before we do that, let me talk a little bit about Benjamin Franklin. It's kind of a, a weird name to pop up in that, in that uh, group of three names. Benjamin Franklin, obviously not in the Bible. But he has a handful of quotes that you might remember, that you might kind of trigger your brain to think, oh, yeah, I, I know what he said. Um, and what I want to raise is, do we? Did he really say a penny saved is a penny earned? That's not true. He never said that. There's a couple Benjamin Franklin quotes that jump, jumped out to me as I, was, as I was kind of researching, like, how do we know things are reliable? How do we know what people say is what they actually said? Benjamin Franklin never said, a penny saved is a penny earned. Let me just dive into this real quick. Blaine McCormick is kind of a history nerd that wants to essentially uncover untruths about quotes from famous people. And he says this, Franklin never actually said his most famous misattribution. The actual quote from 1737 is, a penny saved is two pence clear, which is far more financially sophisticated. The misquote blends cost saving with revenue creation and stays completely on the income statement. The actual quote comes from the balance sheet. So there's a different context to what was actually said. And then, of course, we play the telephone game with with, you know, before there was the printing press especially, but before there was internet and the way that information moves, um, you know, things are documented so differently now. So is that what he actually said? I mean, kind of, but there's a different context to what we actually think. It's much more simple in the way that we think a penny saved is a penny earned. There's a, there's a more sophisticated financial context around that. That's just a, you know, that's just a six-word quote. What about this one? People also think Benjamin Franklin said, beer is the proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> Here's McCormick on that one. This is definitely the most popular misattribution placed onto a t-shirt. In fact, the misquote probably keeps the t-shirt industry in Philadelphia afloat every year. This is another mistruth. Tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, involve me and I learn. I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's, it's good flowing, you know, we can kind of remember that, but Benjamin Franklin never said it. Here's something he did say. So sometimes we hear things and it actually wasn't true. Sometimes we hear things and we go, did he really say that? He that lives upon hope dies farting. Benjamin Franklin said that. Don't give me the email after the service about that one. 
Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin said that, and it's actually in more sophisticated context than you think. It has to do with hard work and not just hoping that things are going to work out. And then if you, if you just hope and you're not fed well because you're not actually doing hard work, you're going to have these gaps in your digestive system. And then... So he revised that 16 years later. I'm not kidding. 16 years later, he's more famous for saying, he that lives upon hope dies fasting. Okay. That's, that's my intro, by the way. We're going to go to the Bible with that last quote. Here's the point. Things are said all the time, and sometimes they're true, and we're remembering, we're remembering them true, and sometimes we have to go, did they really say that? What's the context for that? Is that really what they meant? Is there more around that cultural implication? Is there more about what they were understanding before and after that conversation? Because we can take snippets, and we do this now daily, hourly, Twitter, social media is essentially a platform for us to take things possibly, usually out of context. We just get 140 characters and no explanation. So what we want to do is go, did Jesus really say that? And there's a whole maybe Old Testament that builds up to him saying something that's important. And to take it in context or to take it out of context is very important. Okay, so let's go ahead and do this. Let's go to Matthew 16. I'm going to have you go to slide three. I'm going to start reading. And there's a couple. I just want to humble ourselves and, and admit that it's, it's easy to read this 2,000 years later, 2,000 plus years later, and go, oh, of course Jesus said that. This is the story of the gospel. Listen to how his most faithful disciples react to some of his claims. They're very new. See, this is a really important part of Jesus' ministry where he's kind of transitioning from, you know, he starts out and does some miracles and he's, he's kind of this mysterious figure. He's not really coming out and saying he's the Christ yet. He's not being explicit about his whole life plan. He's doing things and he's gathering a following and these strange miracles are happening and then he's gathering his 12 disciples and they're kind of on board but they're still just like, out to lunch with what he's actually saying half the time, and there's kind of a turning point sometimes when he actually reveals who he is. Okay, so it's, it's this journey, and it's on his timeline. We'll see that, where he doesn't actually want his disciples to go fully public with who he is. So, verse 13 in chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, that's significant. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man a handful of times. So he's actually kind of letting the cat out of the bag. This goes back to a prophecy in Daniel and a vision that references the son of man. So son of man can be taken a couple different ways. There's son of man like you're human. You have flesh and blood and we're human. Or the son of man, the son of man will fulfill the prophecy. Many prophecies will be the son of man to come down. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So many, many a lot of different chatter, a lot, of, a lot of things being said online about what's really true, maybe not online, but it's not too different from what we see daily. Everyone's got their opinion about what is going on here. Who is this? What is truth about this figure? Here's the question. But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will, give you the king, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. So, there's this kind of revealing to his disciples. And Peter goes, not fully public, but Peter goes public to the disciples and to Jesus. You are the Christ. This is moving this is moving, especially with how Jesus responds back to Peter. And the one thing I want to take out of this is that Jesus is revealing who he truly is. He's not just a, a, a lowercase son of man. He's not just another man with teaching and a following. He is uppercase son of man. He is the Christ. He is the true and better prophet. He is the true and better Elijah. He's the true and better John the Baptist. He's the true and better of everything that they've been seeing. So this is significant. And the first thing that he talks about, the first thing that Jesus establishes and talks about when he starts to come public with who his identity really is, is establishing the church. And that's significant. If you think about meeting someone new or someone, new, someone meets you for the first time, you know, who are you? What's your name? What, what do you do? Who, you have family? You have a wife? You have kids? You have a husband? You, like, what's important to you? That's kind of what's talked about first, Right? And so Jesus is revealing, yeah, I am the Christ. And instead of giving you this whole history lesson about all the prophecy, which they know somewhat, I'm going to talk to you about establishing the church, something very important to Jesus. Okay, so that's number one. Jesus cares about establishing the church once he's starting to go more and more public with his ministry. All right, let's read verse 21, just really quick. The next verse. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this just feels like, I thought we were talking about the church and the gates of hell won't prevail and victory, and now you're talking about suffering. Now you're talking about suffering. Like this is... It seems mismatched. Right when Jesus starts to go public about being the Christ, he talks about establishing the church and suffering. It's like, how do those fit together? And there's confusion. And we, 2,000 years later, we know, you know the doctrine of grace, and Jesus goes to the cross, and we're going to get there. But this is very confusing for them right then. They know Jesus. They've been living. I mean, think about your relationships with your family. You live with them. You live in the same house, maybe. I mean, we're talking about disciples that are following Jesus around, setting up camp, going on ministry, seeing, seeing miracles, and they still don't have, essentially, the full picture of how this all fits together. Their doctrine, their theology is not complete, and Jesus is revealing it to them and the public on his own timeline. This is very intentional with how Jesus is kind of going public. So here's, here's what we're going to kind of address today. 
with these things. With the church and, and kind of a broader sense of institutions, how do people interact with one another in groups? And then also this thing called suffering or being brought low. Jesus is very explicit about these things and how we're going to further the gospel. We're going to talk about our way and how we think through these things, and we're going to talk about God's way. And that's the most, the most basic, like the, if I could choose four words when we go to devotions with our kids, or I try to share essentially what I believe is reality through my worldview of Christianity and how that rubs up against what I want to do and what's actually true and good. That's how I, that's how I describe it sometimes. And there's more to it. There's, there's a lot that we could go into, but there's always this tension, right? How do we think about it as humans? What does our flesh, what does our first implication lean towards? What's our way and what's God's way? So let's look at both of those and see what Jesus is really getting at with this hard-headed, quick-to-speak, passionate, emotions-on-his-sleeve Peter. Because I'm like that, and I resonate with Peter with what he says next. Let's go to slide four. Our way, our response to Jesus saying these things about suffering I mean, Peter follows this up really quick. He basically says he's going to suffer. Jesus says he's going to suffer. He's going to be killed and raised on the third day. Verse 22. And Peter, so Peter just got this fantastic ego boost. I mean, all of 13 through 20 was essentially Peter getting the right answer and Jesus publicly in front of the disciples saying, Peter, I mean, he gave him his... He gave him a different name, which actually is relevant to how he's going to establish his church on this rock. I'm going to establish this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Can you imagine Peter's ego? If anyone's prone to having a little bit of an ego trip, it's Peter. And it just probably went through the roof. So he's feeling good when he comes to rebuke Jesus. Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, and we all just saw that he's the Christ. And Peter's first response to him when he, saw, when he talks about suffering is that human response that says, no, you won't be brought low. You won't suffer. Let's do it man's way. Let's do it our way. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's pretty direct there. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay? Peter's still confused about what, the, what is a Christ. There's prophecy, and they're really well read in the scriptures, and they know that there will be a deliverer, there will be a Messiah, and Jesus is starting to reveal that. But they're still confused on what does that mean? How do we actually go about this? Peter's probably thinking about, well, we're going to do it man's way, which is to conquer and come in with a shiny crown and on a white horse and military power, possibly. And Jesus is talking about being crushed by the authorities of that day. So, I mean, this is, we, we can't avoid what Jesus said. He called Peter Satan. He didn't even say, you're acting like Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. 
So, I mean, this begs the question. There should be things in the Bible where we come up to this and go, did he really say that? Was he that direct? Why is this so offensive to, to Jesus? See, this reminds me of a conversation that Jesus had with Satan, where Satan is essentially tempting Jesus with man's way, with power, with nations. You can have all of this if you just renounce. Did, did that happen? So, so Jesus is seeing Peter ask the same questions or behave in a similar manner that Satan essentially gains his power, which is through the ways of man, which is through the ways of creation, not through the ways of the creator, which has a totally different, totally different upside-down spin on it. And we'll get there. There's another, I mean, we don't, we don't even have to go back to that conversation. Let's go back to Genesis. I started this talk here today with a couple of quotes, and I've got this underlined in my notes, and to really hammer home the underlined phrase of, did he really say that? Did Benjamin Franklin really say it like that? Satan in the garden? Did God really say? Fill in the blank. Did God really mean for it to be like that? Did God really say not to eat from this tree? He doesn't just come in and, you know, guns ablazing, just conquer with power. There's deception, and there's an attractive call to our flesh, to the ways of man, not the ways of God. So this is how Peter is acting in his own flesh. He's questioning not the motive of Jesus to be the Christ, but the way that he's going to do it is still brand new and shocking to, to how Jesus describes. It's to bring himself low and suffer. Let's go to slide five. Let's talk about our way. So that's kind of our way when it comes to Peter's response. Let's talk about modern day. Just a little bit. Just a little bit on our way. The human, the American culture that we're in, kind of what we're surrounded in and what we see every day. Let's talk a little bit about institutions. Peter is going to be a rock in Jesus establishing the church. The church is important and suffering is important. So I can't take credit for this. This, is, this has been really relevant, I think, in the last couple of years, but I think it's even more relevant as these years go by and how we are confused with what institutions are doing what. The church is being established to proclaim the gospel. In America, in our affluent country here, and kind of our culture, our, not even just our country, but our time right here, 2022, Sometimes we get confused on what the institution of church is for. Truth and love, right? To hold our, our convictions that we'll die for. And we can take those convictions, we can take that need to have convictions and need to be essentially preaching the truth in love, of course. Preaching the truth and holding fast to something that we put our hope in and that's something that we will actually die for, something that is at the base foundation of our whole life. And we can start to move that over to a different institution called government. And some of the most fiery convictions that people seem to be able to die for now 
is the church of the red or the church of the blue. And we've just moved convictions over to government. Not everyone. It's not a whole, it's not like this big one-for-one -one switch. But this is where I see a lot of conviction. Of course, government's important, and God actually establishes government, but sometimes we blur the lines and see what is that actually there for. And sometimes government and how we view our policies and social care and activism can actually push that over to another institution. Because those things are good, and to, and to provide maximum human, human flourishing, we need to have policy, we need to have politics. We, we can't just go anarchy. God establishes governments. He's sovereign over it all. And sometimes that institution, we can start to slip over and hand the ball off to the marketplace. You see social activism and policy creep into the marketplace. The place that you buy your toilet paper might have an opinion and marketing campaigns about social and sexual ethics. Right? The place that you buy your sunglasses from, they might cater to a marketing campaign about what they're doing for racism. And that's not all a bad thing. I'm just saying, we blur the lines on what institutions do what nowadays. And what, what has the marketplace given up? Where has the marketplace pushed over true consumerism? Where we can kind of have our individual preferences, we can buy what we want, we can make this trade. They push it right back to the church. We've done this three-legged circle. They're all kind of blurring the lines or at worst, shoving over one place. Our churches have become consumer-driven. For the most part, in this cultural context in the last 30 years. I mean, I'm just making a general statement. I'm not saying the Bridge Church is crazy consumeristic. I think for the most part, we've got health here. I think that in the American culture, we are crazy about individualism, and we will report how bad the coffee tastes in the church lobby. And maybe even move churches for a consumeristic, individualistic preference rather than a bold, gospel-centered, Christ-biblical conviction, okay? And I'm not saying everyone everywhere, and I'm not saying every church everywhere, but we are confused about institutions in America. We haven't even talked about the institution of the family. But we just need to think through this. What has Christ, what has Christ essentially said the church is there for? What has Christ and what has God said the government is there for? What is allowed in the marketplace? What are we going to these groups... All institutions are, are groups of people with a certain mission. We're just people now in groups doing different missions, okay? And I uh, affirm all of those. We're not going to overthrow the government. We're not going to get rid of the marketplace. We're certainly not going to get rid of the church. We're not going to get rid of the family. But they all have different primary, primary purposes. And we need to look to God on what those are. And we can be really confused when we look around in this moment, okay? So that's number one with institutions. Let's talk about suffering a little bit. I know that's everyone's favorite subject, but how does our way lean on suffering? We essentially, as humans, if we are not given God's example and God, the grace of God, we will lean towards comfort. We will lean towards driving down suffering, even at the expense of other people, to raise our comfort. Okay? 
Now, that's not God's way. And there is something to be said for, I mean, this is manifest even in, even in what might be called general revelation, where we can just see, like, sometimes working out, like, no pain, no gain. Sometimes that truth is actually elsewhere. It's not just in the Bible, where some kind of giving something up, like a little bit of sleep, you don't give up all your sleep, giving up a little bit of sleep, giving up a little bit of discipline on diet, giving up a little bit of discipline on actual pain in the weight room or something, that is the path to create human flourishing with some kind of workout routine. No pain, no gain is a reality that we can't really fight sometimes. There is a no pain, no gain reality when it comes to God establishing his kingdom. And we can't deny that. Our way is to maybe ignore that, maybe to circumvent, maybe to short circuit, but to drive down all of suffering. Now, I'm not talking about abusing. I'm not talking about essentially like maximizing suffering. I mean, the Bible says, shall we sin so grace can abound? By no means. But there is a suffering that Christ essentially does on the cross that he's starting to get into that makes us want to go, are you sure? Did he really say that? Is that really the path? Is that really how God is going to establish his kingdom? And he hasn't even talked about our suffering yet. So let's talk about God's way. Talked a little bit about our way and our kind of hesitancy towards God's way when he just comes out and says what's going to happen. Just like Peter, God's way. Slide six. I'm just going to read through essentially what God says about the church. Now, this is all over the Bible. I picked three. This is in Ephesians and Romans. So the church, Jesus has died, risen, and now the church is starting to be established. This is in Ephesus and then Rome. Listen to how Jesus, or excuse me, listen to how the New Testament talks about the church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is not us warning. I'm going to have to do the second one. They're so connected. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God's vision for the church is to certainly thrive, and what's the battleground? Red church, blue church? Flesh and blood? Your opinion on my opinion? Culture wars? Cosmic powers. We're going high level. God is inviting us into establishing a kingdom that's fighting not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers. This is crazy. Did he really say that? Is what we're doing this morning affecting eternity? The institution of the church is to fight for justice, love, truth and love, guard the truth against cosmic powers, against death and deception. How do we approach flesh and blood? By laying our lives down. We're not fighting to conquer in the way that we, humans, our way is to conquer. That's why it's so weird that Jesus didn't come in on a white horse and conquer in the way that rulers and kings generally did conquer. 
He came low. He came low. Last one. Love one another with brotherly affection. This speaks to how we do treat flesh and blood. Okay, so you want to get upset? You want to have arguments? You want to conquer? You want to outdo one another? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is so hard to even think about when I have my competitive juices going on. Like, you want to compete? You want to be better than someone else? You want to drive your point home? You want to have that Facebook comment thread that goes this long about a certain culture war issue? You want to have people affirm that you're right? You want to win? You want to outdo someone? This is what we're called to outdo each other in. And not to sacrifice truth, truth and love. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. When I disagree with someone in my own home, I'm not talking about someone you even disagree with on important things. When you disagree with someone in your own home, stranger, whoever, we're called to outdo them in showing honor. We're called to outdo them in showing honor, which is completely contrary to how we even have civil discourse nowadays, if we could say it's civil. The whole online platforms, I think it's, I think it's really hard. I, I, sometimes it's just not worth it. But even if you're going to engage there, outdoing in showing honor. This is God's way. All right, slide seven. Let's keep going in Matthew. God's way for suffering. God's way for suffering. Last two verses we're going to read here, verse 24 and 25. So he just got done rebuking Peter and saying, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me continue onward with describing what a Christ does and what now his church will do. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We see these teachings, we see these things in the Bible that are just so paradoxical. And it's why Jesus was so attractive and at the same time, controversial. Because he's not giving us three bullet points for how to have a better Sunday or a better month or a better fiscal year or to how to get out of the pandemic with driving down our own suffering. He's essentially saying, look at what I'm doing and you're going to be called to do the same thing. You're going to be called to give up something. You're going to be called to suffer. Now that can look a lot of different ways. That can look a lot of different ways. Essentially, we're called not to push people down so we can thrive. That's man's way. We're called to lay ourselves down so other people can thrive. And in doing that, there's actually joy. and like we, It's not like we're just martyrs and we're, we're down and out. There's a joy in being sacrificial. You give something up, even if it says something as simple as your calendar. So when we relate it to how, how do we suffer nowadays? I mean, we are affluent in this country for the most part. This, you know, this church that gives us a little bit more context, 
they were, they were being martyrs. We're going to talk about Peter in a little bit and how his life ended. But for the most part, our, our personal safety, maybe even our financial you know, income, whether, whether it's perse- like the persecuted church is global still, for sure. And we're in Disneyland where that doesn't really happen. Straight up. Like, we are not persecuted in a lot of different ways that others have been persecuted for hundreds to thousands of years. So how, what do we give up? What do we give up? Time, preferences, money, n- you name it. Anything that you're holding on to tighter than God, you're probably called to give up or loosen. My best example is relationships just in general. I mean, you could, you could take it with my kids, my wife, but even just friendships. You're going to give something up. You're going to give up sleep. You're going to give, I mean, you're going to give a lot up. <laughs> we could talk about that for a few hours, and then we could talk about for a few days how fantastic some of those relations are, relationships are and enduring they are because you gave something up. And it seems to me, whenever I'm holding something tighter, that's, things are not thriving as well. And that's not a prosperity gospel to where all of your relationships are going to be in line. It's a picture to what God shows us. We give up, we lay ourselves down, and that is the key. On some timeline, maybe not this month, maybe not even in this lifetime, but for eternity, when you put the timeline out to eternity, giving up and being self-sacrificial will have human flourishing and benefit, even if it's on that eternal timeline to honor God. Last slide, and then we'll be wrapping up here. Why did God do this? Why can't he just wave his magical wand and give us what we want in the same way we kind of want it, and then he would also be glorified? Why is there this struggle between our way and God's way? Well, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. And it's so much more beautiful than us writing the story. The gospel is we're born broken, and we do have a difference of preference to God's way. We have our way that we lean towards, and we have God's way. And they don't jive very well sometimes. And our preference and putting that above God is called sin. And God has all the authority in that moment to essentially just write us out of the story. But what he does is something amazing. Okay? He essentially takes that broken, gnarly relationship that we've broken... And he makes a way. And he doesn't just describe, I'm going to take centuries to have these prophets talk about the Messiah. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to have all these stories in the Old Testament that actually happened, like slavery and the deliverance through the Red Sea and then into the desert and into the land of milk and honey. I'm not just going to have centuries go by of these stories to give you pictures about how good it is to be delivered from death. I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm not just going to come and show up and be the Christ. I'm actually going to do what I've been describing. I'm actually going to be the Christ, and when I start talking about what a Christ is and what a king is, it's going to feel weird, even though, just keep with me, it's good for you. It's good for you to realize a good king does not have a crown that's shiny. He has a crown that's thorny. It's good for you to know that a good king is not on a throne In the moment that he's suffering for you, he's on a cross. 
It's weird and it's different, but it's good. And this is how I can see the story of Peter speak to us a little bit more. Peter is so hard-headed, even when he's following Jesus, that he doesn't even realize the gospel when Jesus tells him it's the gospel. This is how it's going to go down, Peter. I just revealed to you that I'm the Christ, which, by the way, puts you, puts you below me in the, in the line of authority, even being my disciple and an apostle eventually. And now he's rebuking Jesus, and Jesus comes back, and he has to remind him, and there's more ministry to do, and there's more confusion, and Peter's not all just fine. He's still hard-headed, and he still denies Jesus up until the last couple days. Peter's theology is out of whack even during Christ going to the cross. And what we see and why this is so important is Peter's transformed. This is so incredibly moving for me to see someone like Peter that's so hard-headed and so quick to speak. And he's asked, who is Christ? By a little girl, and he denies him. He does not have boldness. He's a shell. But then when he does see Christ do what he said he will do, it transforms Peter. God is not here to wave a magical wand and make our lives be better. He came down and suffered the worst consequence, the worst suffering, the worst death you could ever imagine. Completely innocent, killed by people he's dying for. And Peter sees this and it's transformative. And so what our, our goal is, is not to see it with our own eyes, which Peter did, is to see it with the eyes of our heart and go, is this beautiful? Is it beautiful for someone that doesn't owe a death, that doesn't deserve this, to still do it? Because even the demons and even Satan profess that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, they know who Jesus is. To say Jesus is the Son of God is different than seeing what he's done as beautiful. And this emboldens Peter. And Peter lives a life that does establish the church, that does become one of the most bold apostles, that takes that fire and that emotion that he, that God gave him and channels it into something that is beautiful. And he was hung upside down on a cross because, <laughs> sorry. He didn't want to be hung like Jesus. He was so transformed into how beautiful and good God was that he couldn't help but do the same thing. And that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting to see what God did with the eyes of our heart. There's a lot of theology and there's a lot of stories and there's a lot that goes into it. But at the basis, our way, God's way. At the first glance, God's way seems ridiculous. It does. And then after you experience him and you realize, I'm under something here. I'm not above it. I'm under it. I want to learn more. How does this fit together? I will continue to walk with Jesus. I will continue to see what he says about communion. I will continue to see what he says about the church. I will continue to see him suffer, suffer, and die. And it comes to this head where all of a sudden we see with the eyes of our heart. That is my prayer for you. That's my prayer for myself on a daily, hourly basis, that I will see with the eyes of my heart God's way not our way.
But what about you? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? Or do you believe Jesus? There's a little difference. Do you believe in the presence, in the reality, in the existence of God? Satan's right there with you. Or do you believe God? Do you believe God's promises? Do you believe a suffering Christ is who he said he was and is and did what he said he would do? We're going to close here. We're going to sing a song that's about the church and about Jesus establishing the church. So let me pray and we'll finish up here. Lord, thank you for giving us this time. Thank you for giving us your word. I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts. We know that our own words are, they're just nothing without your power, God. I pray that you would give us your spirit. I pray that you would help us see you on the cross clearly laying your life down, not speaking when you could say so much. And I pray that it would manifest in our lives to where we may suffer well, whatever that means. I pray we would hold our convictions in the right place and that we would see you clearly. Amen.